0: meetup.com slash chicagognosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy.
1: Ethics, karma, and interdependence. This is the second lecture in a course we've initiated on meditation. Discussing the, the requisites as well as the necessary uh, steps we need in order to really understand how to meditate. How to uh, Acquire information about any given phenomenon. Now, we discussed previously the nature of uh, the eightfold uh, path of yoga as taught by Patanjali. Namely, yama, niyama, which is ethical discipline, restraint, to do or not to do, literally speaking. We also spoke about asana, which is posture. Posture. We also talked about uh, pranayama, work with sexual energy, transmutation, moral purity. We also talked about pratyahara, which is uh, uh, the suspension of the senses to withdraw the senses, uh, withdraw the mind from the external sensorial perceptions, to have silence of mind. We also spoke about uh, Uh, Dharana, concentration, to focus the mind on only one thing. And we also spoke about Dhyana, which is actual meditation, to receive information about an object, to perceive the new, and to comprehend any given focus or object of our meditation. And then Samadhi, which is ecstasy, which is comprehension, to perceive without the filters of the ego. And so in this lecture, we're speaking about yama and niyama, about the necessity to uh, curtail negative habits of mind, body, and speech. So we're going to talk about the foundations of meditation, precisely in how we cultivate um, genuine ethics and discipline. So that we can enter into, uh, our, so that we can make our practices effective. In this subject of ethics, we always speak about karma, because karma comes from the Sanskrit karman, which means cause and effect. It Pertains to what actions we produce will necessarily produce certain results. And likewise, interdependence, which is the Buddhist concept, but which we find in all traditions, how. All phenomena are inextricably linked. Internal states, external events, constitute two dynamics of one thing. Our relationship to each other, to humanity, to ourselves. So the importance of ethics is, cannot be underestimated. For it is ethical discipline following what we call the Ten Commandments of Moshe, the Ten Meritorious Actions of Buddhism, is how we purify our mind, and which we have the stability of uh, consciousness in order to genuinely uh, enter into the higher stages. For instance, we have Niyama Niyama, which precede Asana, so it's impossible to sit down with one's posture to meditate if throughout the day we, for instance, committed fornication or adultery or we stole people who, uh, who commit, who have bad habits, who lack moral discipline. If they try to approach the science of meditation, they can't sit. It's impossible to sit still if we've had an argument or if we've uh, been angry in some way. So we need to, uh, if we want to be able to enter into, have a stable, firm, and relaxed asana posture. We need to, throughout the day, be very disciplined in how we, uh, how we act. Because as the Buddha Gautama Shakyamuni taught us in the Dhammapada, mind precedes phenomena. We become what we think. If what we think is evil, then our actions will be evil. But if what we think is pure, then uh, good, good results follow, as the Buddha taught. So in this lecture, uh, in talking about ethics, we're going to discuss a lot of the, the Muslim and Sufi teachings, from most specifically the Al-Risala by Al-Kushari. We're going to talk a lot about Hinduism and Buddhism with uh, the law of karma and interdependence as well. But here we have a quote from Rumi, which really emphasizes the the necessity for uh, curtailing uh, wrong habits, wrong views. Let's ask God to help us to self-control. For one who lacks it, lacks his grace. The undisciplined person doesn't wrong himself alone, but sets fire to the whole world. Discipline enabled heaven to be filled with light. Discipline enabled the angels to be immaculate and holy. The peacock's plumage is his enemy. So what does this mean? Uh, The Peacock was typically, if we uh, awaken in the eternal planes, the peacock can symbolize uh, pride. One's appearance. How we want to make ourselves visible to others. And the tail, with its colors, is really our enemy. This self, uh, this illusion of self that we typically carry within, which we need to curtail through ethics. The world is the mountain. In each action, the shout that echoes back. This is karma. If you speak wrong words, if we uh, are vulgar, if we are rude to another person, that will produce its uh, corresponding consequence. And now, this is such a basic thing, but it really is essential, especially as we relate to other people. Because what we are internally affects what, what we experience externally. <coughs> and uh, if we carry any type of negativity in our, in our, in our internal states, that affects others, even though not, it may not be visible to us on the surface. So this discipline and rough treatment are a furnace to extract the silver from the dross. So, especially, this is uh, as an alchemical statement, discipline and rough, this discipline and rough treatment are a furnace in which our psychological elements can be burned. So, particularly if we're married and working in alchemy, this is our furnace. And oftentimes... Uh, What's interesting is we find rough, the word rough treatment. The words rough treatment. What does it I mean The silver? The silver is a, is a metallic element representing the, the sexual energy. The lunar? the lunar forces. And so the dross is our psychological, egotistical impurities, the shells that are discarded as we extract consciousness from each ego. But in order to do that, really we need First, ethics, discipline, and we need rough treatment, meaning we need to be treated badly. But this is, of course, the, the difficult thing that we don't want to encounter. We, want th- we don't want people to insult us or to say harmful things or be negative. But really, when people are, do that for us, they're doing us a favor. When people are uh, <coughs> condemnatory, prejudiced, this is how our egos emerge, and if we act on that defect or ego, then we, uh, as a result, make the other human being suffer. And, we con- and then it's the law of the Italian eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, law of retribution. But there's a superior law that we need to develop, which is the law of mercy. And so, this is our furnace, the psychological gymnasium that Master Samael of Vior speaks about so frequently. Uh, we need, for one thing, we have strangers <coughs> who may be rude to us on the street, produces egos that are not necessarily the most uh, uh, um, deep in our, deeply rooted in our psyche. We have friends and family, which is typically more stressful. And then lastly, the most difficult ordeal is our own partner, our wife or husband, for uh, those who are married. But it's precisely from this psychological pressure which emerges and exerts itself on our psyche to stimulate and boil the waters at 100 degrees Celsius. So those elements that need to be destroyed are, emerge and can be worked on. So we need difficulty. And as... Uh, uh, it's important that... Uh, it's important that we, we have to face these challenges. And as uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, author of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, taught, is that this the greatest thing, the most difficult thing that uh, this, the spirit of the renunciate seeks to develop is uh, to take on challenges in order to exalt in its own strength. So oftentimes we look at ordeals and problems that we, we don't want them. But we really need them. We need to be challenged so that we can really flex our spiritual muscles and grow. And so, that all that, so those elements which are boiling in those waters of, of a, either temptation or conflict so that we can see them for what they are to observe them. And this is key. This is how one becomes an angel through, through, through difficulty. That's an image of a, that's an Elohim or an angel crowning a woman. So that woman is our soul. If we want to be crowned to receive the crown of life, we must be faithful unto death, as uh, the book of Revelation teaches us. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Now the crown is precisely keter, Chokma Bina, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three energies of the Lord in one the triunity which is represented by the angel is our inner god who crowns us if we are faithful unto death meaning every day we, we work on our our pride our anger or lust meditating on those defects that were boiling when someone said something insulting to us and then we have to remember that in order to really work on that ego on those defects we cannot act on those defects because if we in the moment react to the external perceptions or impressions of the, our insulter then we in turn strengthen our ego our defects but if we restrain our mind we respond with kindness we're developing virtue and swami shivanana teaches that you know every time an ego emerges of anger and someone insults us we respond we curtail and restrain our mind from behaving in that way, we strengthen our virtue. And in turn, we give more force to our soul. But every time we identify, even mentally with our chatter, psychologically in the intellectual center, our negative feelings in the emotional center, then we strengthen our habits terribly. But in order to really work effectively on the ego, we have to catch that defect as soon as it arises. Yes. So observation is restraint. So we observe it, and it's when, you know, as we're observing, we learn how to not act on our desires. And it's that restraint that really gives us, that is really the essence of discipline. Because if we don't restrain our mind, again, it's like feeding the lion. In this image, we have Sufis dancing at Sama, which is a spiritual concert. And we find this quote from Al-Kushari, a Sufi master, scholar, who wrote a a book called Principles of Sufism. He explains uh, the following. It is related that Ibn al-Mubarak said, We have greater need of a little bit of refinement than a lot of knowledge. So it's good to read books to study this doctrine intellectually. But we have more need of a lot, a little bit of a, uh, psychological purity than having intellectual knowledge. But this is not to downgrade the necessity for studying books and lectures and, and receiving help and clarification in that way. But what's more important is applying the teachings, because that's the only time that it becomes real. For as we say, uh, it is the dead. You know, this teaching is really—it's a dead letter that only the spirit can vivify. Meaning the letter kills. The page, if we just leave it at the intellect, the soul is dead. But when we fully enact it, then really any scripture or book becomes living. It becomes a part of our soul. So we need, a lot, we need more refinement in our habits than we, than we do for reading books. Because uh, that's the importance. You know, study is important, but practice is essential. I heard Muhammad bin al-Husayn say that bin ibn uh, al-Mubarak said, "We sought for right conduct once the teachers of right conduct had left us." Now this is just uh, explaining a, a common habit in spiritual groups, where individuals often uh, may be taught by a master, and when I mean master, I mean a master of major mysteries, who's raised. Who has reached the fifth initiation of fire, raising the kundalini up the physical, vital, astral, mental, and causal bodies, has reached Tifereth, in the center of the tree of life, and is an incarnated Christ, is a Bodhisattva. So many times, Bodhisattvas come to teach humanity, but they don't really get the message because people tend to intellectualize, read too much, and not practice. So once these teachers leave, such as in the case of uh, comes to my mind. Samael and Vior. he taught right conduct and he disincarnated and is working with initiates in the internal planes. So then people start looking for the teacher. Well, we have his books, but we, uh, you know, now, we're, now we seek the, the right path once uh, we receive the teachings, after we've received the teachings. And it just emphasizes a, a dynamic or quality within disciples. We need to really uh, take advantage of the practice, basically, of this discipline. It is said that if one has three traits, one is never a stranger. They are avoiding doubters, behaving well, and restraining oneself from causing harm. So what does it mean to be a stranger? We find in the Old Testament, oftentimes uh, in Judaism, the stranger associated with the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. Doesn't literally mean those who are not of the Jewish race or the culture. For, refers to initiates, those who are not initiated and have re, not received the crown of life. Because Yehu, or Yehuda, Yod Chava, Judah, and uh, Jehovah. We had the and Yehu is it really has the same letters associated with each other. To be a stranger is to be uh, unconscious and asleep. To not be an initiate. To not have development with uh, the creative energies of God. And through discipline. So we need to avoid doubters. Meaning it's not good to associate necessarily with people who are very skeptical and are negative. Because negative emotions are more infectious than any disease. If someone is angry and they give a speech to a group of people, they infect other people with that anger. And this is not ethics at all. Many religious teachers, preachers of different denominations and traditions, whether in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, even in Buddhism, really, when people are filled with skepticism and cynicism, they infect students. And this is a crime because that creates doubt. Doubt. And once people are, in, are filled with fear and dependency on a group or, or doubt about a teaching about how to change oneself, really, that's a, that's a terrible karma. There's terrible consequences for misleading people in that way. But doubters is really people who, are, who try to pull us away from our practice. And we need to be very uh, disciplined. If we have to associate with certain people, then we had to multiply our diligence and our ethical state of mind. So behaving well is necessary. And when we talk about behaving well, we're talking about, as in Buddhism, the trainings of body, speech, and mind. Or we talk about our three brains and the Gnostic doctrine. Body, which is the motor instinctive sexual brain, the center. We have speech, usually related to our emotions. Because as Jesus taught, out of the mouth comes calumnies, murders, thefts, adulteries, fornications. It doesn't matter what you not really matter what you consume, but really what comes out of your mouth is what he said. So, but speech relates to heart because what we have in our emotional center really expresses through our our speech. And if we are negative and evil, if we if we cultivate that in our mental states, our emotional states, when we speak, degeneration, and that infects others. So, so usually when people are very negative like that, we either should avoid them and not open our doors to receiving impressions which will, we know will infect our heart. So part of our ethics is to be wise on our relationships and to curtail our mind. For as uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said again in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, that uh, train of thought is... He says that uh, for some people you may not give your hand Only a paw And I desire also that your paw have claws So we need to learn how to establish boundaries With people Being compassionate doesn't mean Being a doormat Where people can walk And abuse us But compassion is really Knowing how to establish boundaries For the benefit of oneself and others And so that relates to speech Because how we speak determines how we relate other human beings. And so when we work with our uh, emotional brain, we're really dominating our tongue. It's intimately related. And then mind, which is our intellectual center. And so, uh, you know, we always, in Buddhism, we talk about avoiding the sins of body, which is fornication, uh, <clears throat> engaging in using intoxicants or drugs, alcohol, etc. And likewise, uh, for the abuse of the heart, we talk about restraining anger, pride, resentment, calumny, envy. And likewise, with the intellect, we av- seek to avoid wrong views. Specifically, we're talking in Buddhist doctrine, and I'm having a. And this is our. This is really the center of our problem with how we negotiate our internal realities with the external world. Is that we typically have mistaken views about who we are as a psyche. And the only way to do that is to observe. Because every ego, every defect has its own viewpoint. Its own thoughts, its own ideologies, its own sentiments, its own ways of acting. But in order to behave well, we need to understand what in us is mistaken in our perceptions. And the only way to do that is to separate your psyche from the ego, and to observe it. And then restraining oneself from causing harm, which is, even if you feel consumed with passion or lust or anger, to restrain yourself and to not engage in that habit. Because the more we give into it, the the less energy we have for our work. But the more we restrain our mind, the greater strength we have. This is an image of Swami Shivananda, who is a great resurrected master, meditating on a, a leopard, I believe. So uh, this image, I'm not sure when the, when in his life this was taken, but obviously uh, he was a, an adept who had no ego. He fully eliminated his defects, which is symbolized by meditating and with a, with this beautiful smile on his face over this dead skin of an animal. The animal is our ego. So with ethical discipline, one controls, one annihilates those defects. And one, like Shiva can meditate and show that he, is, he or she has conquered one's animality. And so Swami Shivananda gave very practical and essential points in his books, which we study. He says in the book, Concentration and Meditation, about the need for ethics. Some foolish, impatient students take to concentration practice. This is preliminary concentration, not real meditation yet. Without in any manner undergoing any preliminary training in ethics. So just to step back and emphasize, concentration is to focus on one object, such as a mantra or a visualization, an object, without thinking about other things. Meditation is when we are really extracting information about what we are concentrating on so they're different but in order to have real concentration we need to really be ethical meaning don't fornicate don't drink don't steal don't commit adultery don't indulge in anger lust pride this is a serious blunder meaning those who don't really develop ethics before entering into concentration Ethical perfection is a matter of paramount importance. Concentration without purity of mind is of no avail. There are some occultists who have concentration, but they do not have good character. That is the reason why they do not make any progress in the spiritual line. Now, uh, there was a saying, and we're going to talk a little bit about Islam, how... uh, Uh, Basically, uh, there was a Sufi master that was uh, approached by a student who told him, so-and-so can fly. So-and-so can walk on the water, in the air. And then the Sufi master said, well, does he follow the Quran? And the answer, of course, was an obvious no. So he says, shun that man. Don't, Don't have anything to do with him. Because those who have powers and abilities and concentration can do so also through the ego. They strengthen. So the difference is, in terms of our ethical discipline, we seek to curtail the habits of our defects or mind. But a black magician takes those egos, such as anger, and concentrates that force through that anger. And so they have a lot of concentration as well, but within that anger, and it's so it's conditioned. The type of ethics we seek to cultivate is. By extracting our free consciousness. So there's no filter. No conditioning. It's liberated. But uh, that's really the meaning of ethics. But many people develop powers in their ego. Because they keep strengthening the shell. The conditioning. Which has them act and perceiving in that subjective way. Here we find an image of a Sufi meditating. Meditating. And uh, in order to explain this, the necessity for ethics in terms of our how we practice, as well as uh, the importance of having experience and uh, being uh, being uh, experienced and uh, developing cognizance. In uh, in Islam, we talk about Sharia, Sharia law, which in the Middle East is associated typically as the culture and customs of Muslims. But that's not the Sharia that we're talking about. In this case, we're talking about ethical discipline. Don't fornicate, don't lie, don't, don't, don't indulge in anger, etc. We call this the divine law, meaning, or uh, as we say in Hebrew, the Torah, or in Sanskrit, Dharma. It's the instruction that teaches us how to die in our errors and to be reborn in our being. Time, they changed that law it became a uh, it became uh, literally the the part of the really a, a cultural thing rather than uh, a conscious uh, teaching so Sharia is really the foundation of, of uh, how we practice and just using the Arabic terms but in Hebrew we call it uh, Torah the law so we have uh, in Sufism we call three st- uh, four stages, actually. We have Sharia, which is uh, the basic law or instruction, how to be disciplined in meditation. Tariqa, which is the path. meaning It literally means a path in the desert, meaning how we walk the path, how we practice. Then we have Hakika, which is tr- hak, an al Haq, is what some, a Sufi master by the name of Ibn Hussein Mansur Al-Halaj said, I, an al Haq, I am the truth. Hak means truth. It's God. And uh, anyone who uh, has no ego and can manifest their, the truth within themselves, like Shivananda did or uh, Al-Halaj. And so Hakika is the truth, the way, the path, the way of knowledge. Marifa, or, uh, Marifa, actually more accurately, is knowledge, excuse me, but Hakika is truth. And Marifa really is the same thing, the two aspects of the same higher teaching. Hakika and Marifa is Gnosis in Greek. Direct perception of divinity. So the divine law the divine law commands one to the duty of servanthood. The way, the inner reality is the contemplation of divine lordship. So this excerpt really emphasizes how if we want to have internal experiences, we need to have to follow the law. And again, I don't mean terrestrial laws, but I mean the laws pertaining to the development of the consciousness, the laws of initiation. So the path, the way, the inner reality is contemplation of divine lordship. Contemplation, we're going to revisit this term. In Arabic is musha'qida, which is where we get the the Muslim declaration of faith, the shakhidah. Which we'll elaborate on. But contemplation is meditation. So, the way the inner reality is when we're meditating and speaking with our God face to face. Outward religious practice not confirmed by inner reality is not acceptable. Inner reality not anchored by outward religious practice is not acceptable. So, there are many Muslims who follow the outward religious practice of their tradition, or Jews, or Christians, yet they don't have any experience. So, this is useless. Neither should we rely on inner experiences if we're not cultivating in our daily physical life ethics. So like the example of the of the of the individual who is flying to the air and and walking on water but not following the Quran is it really emphasizes this point. If someone has powers but isn't practicing chastity, moral purity, restraint, then this is obviously a demon, a black magician. So in order to have you know, really inner reality, it always should be anchored by our ethics, our religious discipline. Divine law brings obligation upon the creation, while the way is founded upon the free action of the real. So again, when we talk about how the divine law brings obligation upon the creation, really when the Muslims talk about, in the Quran, talks about the creation, it's referring to the tree of life the ten sephiroth of Kabbalah. So the divine law brings obligation upon us. We're, we're the bottom of the tree of life, but the law requires us that if we want to enter into the superior dimensions, we need to follow the laws that pertain to those higher worlds. So it's our obligation to do so. Or as uh, Gurdjieff taught in uh, his teachings, the duty part dog uh, the part-dog duty of the being, meaning the necessity of how, in order for God to know himself, to do, acquire cognizance, he develops the tree of life, descends as energy down into different modalities of matter, consciousness, energy, until reaching our physicality, so that we can follow those laws and return inward and upward to the source with knowledge to acquire, so God can know himself through us Because the soul is like a mirror which can reflect the image of God inside. And so the divine law is the obligation upon us to follow those superior laws. While the way is founded upon the free action of the real. So often in these studies we talk about the absolute. Which is the Allah in Arabic. The source of, or the Christ. The source of divinity within us. The highest really the goal of these studies to return to the Absolute. The emptiness ain't soft, ain't soft or. And we often talk about the Absolute as the great reality of life freeing its movement. So There's, there's always movement involved in, in uh, returning to that pristine abstract joy of, of consciousness which is pure liberation without vehicles of any kind. So the way is that we really comprehend the absolute and that we follow the, the Torah, the Sharia, the Quran, the law. The divine law is that you serve Him, the ways that you see Him. So in the beginning, we don't see God, typically, but we seek to serve Him through tra- transforming our daily life into something pure. But the way is that you see Him. So in the beginning, we feel a, we feel a longing and intuition and a hunch about how, about the need to practice and to change certain habits in our daily life. So we are serving God in that way whenever we restrain our mind from doing harmful things and then trying to create peace and harmony with others. This is how we serve God. Karma Yoga. But to take that a step further, we need to perceive God, meaning directly. So the way is that we are actually communicating with our inner being so that He will direct us further. So in the beginning, we serve. We're, we're blind. We don't see anything. But we sense a presence in our heart that we follow and that we want to develop. But to really enter into the path, we need to perceive God directly. So in the beginning, we serve Him, but through the way, by walking this path, this, entering into this path of the Bodhisattva, we have to see God. The divine law is doing what you have been ordered to do. Hakika is bearing witness to what He has determined and ordained, hidden and revealed. So, to bear witness, uh, the Muslims talk about how they pronounce La ilaha, Allah, uh, Allah, Muhammadun, Rasul, Allah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is His prophet. But if you look at the word "to bearing witness," it's shahidah uh, in Arabic. Really, if you add the, if you, uh, you could also say it's mushahidah, which means contemplation, to see. So, to really bear witness as a Muslim is to have spoken with our God face to face, like Prophet Muhammad did. And then when we have that experience, then we could say, "Yes, Allah is Allah, God is God, El is El" in Hebrew. And Muhammad is his prophet, Buddha is his prophet, Krishna, uh, Zarathustra is his prophet. Many prophets, uh, including even Samael and Vior. So to know God and then is to know the prophets from experience. To witness is to see out of the body or in, inter- in the internal planes, or even physically too. So hakika, the truth is bearing witness to what he has determined and ordained. Hidden and revealed So uh, We have two terms Al-Zahir and al batin I can't remember which one is what But Al-Bateen, I believe al batin is uh, The inner Is the name of Allah The inner And then we have the outer Al-Zahir Or it might be the other way around But Al-Zahir and al batin Refer to Names of Allah The inner and the outer Because God is inside But also outside And we know in Islam That uh, Allah has 99 names which relates to Kabbalah. But hidden in the revealed pertains to internal states, external events. So we have to understand the relationship. I heard Abu Ali al-Dakak say that God's saying in the opening chapter of Al-Quran, which is uh, al fatiha Iyaka nabudu, you we worship. So the, Abu Ali al-Dakak said that this preserves the outward practice, the divine law nastain. to you we return for help, establishes the inner reality, the way. So in one of the seven lines of the opening of the Quran, it says, uh, you do we worship and you do we turn for help. So the fact that you do we worship refers to our ethical discipline, working with the divine law. It's efforts that we make to worship God. So really, when we, to worship our divinity means that we don't act on any egotistical impulse within us. So that's the that's the requisite. We have to do that first if we want to receive grace, which is to you, we turn for help. So in accordance with our ethics, we worship the Lord. But then to you, we turn for help, meaning we, we want you to help give me an experience in the astral plane, in the mental plane, in the causal world, in nirvana, in the world of chokmah, the Christ, the absolute even. So there's two things there. First, we Have to practice. And then we have to be patient in order to receive those experiences. So divine law, sharia, is practice. The ethics. Hakika is the experience we get by following our discipline. Know that religious obligation is a spiritual reality and that it was made necessary by His command. And spiritual reality as well is a religious obligation and that the realizations of Him were also made necessary by His command. And, you know, the thing is, I know many people in this tradition, different groups I've been associated with, who do a lot of practices, but for some reason, because they don't really work with their consciousness, they don't have experiences. But at the same time, I know many others who develop their practice and with co- comprehension and cognizance, and they have many experiences. So it's an obligation to develop practice and, to ha- and also to have experiences. They're interconnected. But in order to have a spiritual reality, we have to have a religious obligation. Meaning, we have to really re- cultivate purity. And the only way to do that is to observe oneself. Here and now. So, uh, in, in, order for our, in order to really have experience, we, every time we sit to practice, we have to do it with our Consciousness not with a cloudy mind. But in the beginning, the mind is obscure. But with transmutation and disciplining ourselves little by little, we learn to uh, practice better each time. And in this way, we will attain to realization. So this is an image of uh, Prophet Muhammad ascending up, as we were discussing earlier, up the seven heavens on the creature al barak which has the face of a woman, the body of a mule, should have the tail of a peacock, I believe. And uh, Muhammad, you see, is veiled. And in Muslim tradition, we find that uh, the veil, in always depicting the prophet, is uh, showing for us that God is veiled, and that to know divinity, we need to tear the veil of Isis, which is the illusions of this world. But in order to look directly on divinity, which is expressing through Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, is that fire that we see around him. So we need to tear the veil of our of our false perception, so that we can bear witness of Allah, musha shahida. Because a real Muslim, is a really or a real gnostic, a real practitioner, is somebody who's experienced God and is cultivating that every day, and knows divinity very well directly. So, he emphasizes, this, again, this scripture, Al-Rissalah, principles of Sufism, really teach us the importance of developing ethics. God Almighty and Glorious has said, the sight of the prophet of the time of his ascension, Al-Miraj, the night journey to, uh, ju- ju- from Mecca to Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem up this, the Tree of Life, the seven heavens, did not deviate nor overstep the bounds, Surah 53, verse 17, This is said to mean he maintained the conduct proper to the divine presence. So, when we talk about uh, ethics, it's important to realize that ethics, as when we, uh, if we self-realize or if we come to know God, our ethical discipline doesn't end there, because ethics is restraining the mind from producing causing harm. Even if, we have a lunar, even if we have a solar mind. So We often talk about these studies, how we need to create a solar mental body, a, so, a Christic mind. But still, it's a, it's, even though it's a vehicle of God, it's a, it's a material vehicle which can make mistakes if we identify with it and not choose to reflect the inner image of our being. So even resurrected masters need ethics. They have no ego, but they are like Muhammad knowing God. But even their mind can take them away. On the path, which is why uh, we say that even angels fall can fall. The reason why they, why there are fallen masters is because they lacked ethics. So I don't think that uh, that by eliminating your ego, then you're done with ethics. This is something, faithfulness to God is really eternal. To not back away from that, but that's for resurrected masters. The Most High also said. Save yourselves and your families from the fire. Surah 66, verse 6. Interesting that we find how one needs to save oneself from the fire. We find the number 666. Six. Arcanum 6 of the Tarot relates to the three brains. Again, the indecision, we taught, say, being tempted between good and evil, the virgin and the whore. That represents the ego. According to the commentary of Ibn Abbas, this means teach them the stipulations of the divine law and refine behavior. Ali ibn Ahmad al-Awazi informed us from Aisha, who is uh, the wife of the Prophet Muhammad, that the Prophet said, the child owes it to its parents to make good his name, his upbringing, and his education and conduct. It is related that Sa'id ibn al-Musayib said, whoever does not know what is right what rights God Almighty and glorious has over him and has not been educated in his command and prohibition is cut off from right behavior. So right behavior is knowing, understanding our relationship to our innermost, our being. We can read about ethics, but really it's, this is about our connection, what we learn from God. We cannot learn ethics from any book but really from the book of our life. Fundamentally. But study is important so that we are inspired and that we learn, you know, things that we should do. But the actual doing is knowing what rights God Almighty has over us. Allah, our being, the Christ. It is reported that the Prophet said, God Almighty and glorious has educated me in refined behavior and made good my education. The essence of adab, the most beautiful and fitting, refined behavior, is the gathering together of all good traits or virtues, which every time we annihilate an ego, our our Divine Mother annihilates an ego, we develop a virtue in its stead. The adib, the refined person, is he in whom all are gathered in all these good characteristics. From this is taken the word maduba, banquet, a name for the coming together of such people. So, we often talk about in these studies uh, receiving ordeals in the physical but also the internal planes. If, for instance, you conquer an ordeal of the four elements, we talk about ordeals of fire, earth, water, and air, which are given to us by the angels, we could, if we conquer those ordeals, then we receive feasts, banquets, celebrations in the astral plane with the, the Caribbean, the angels, who appear like children. So again, the ordeals of fire relate to criticism if we're slandered and provoked. Water, which is uh, working with uh, facing difficult circumstances in life, swimming against the current of uh, challenges. Earth, which is when such as financial troubles or difficulties like a mountain are closing in on oneself. And then air, which relates to the mind. So fire with the heart, water with sex. Um, air with the mind and the earth related to the body. So ordeals relate to these elements, manifest as these elements. But when you conquer ordeals, then you uh, have a banquet in, internally, a madubah with a group of refined people, which are angels, like Rumi taught. Really, uh, right created the angels, basically. I heard Abu Ali al-Dakak say, through his obedience, the servant attains to paradise. Through refined conduct and obedience, he attains to God. I also heard him say, I saw someone who, during the prescribed prayer before God, wanted to stretch his hand to his nose and remove something that was in it. His hand was seized. So, when we practice, we really, we, sh- we shouldn't move our body, our asana, our posture, is what it's teaching. And that we don't uh, obstruct our practice with bad habits, such as that, that was mentioned. But really, it pertains to how we concentrate. When we sit to meditate and practice, we shouldn't move our body, we shouldn't do other things, we shouldn't think about other things. Now, again, emphasizing the nature of the divine law, the ethical discipline. We talk about the, the doctrine of unity, which in Islam is tawhid. So, again, this is the saying that Allah is Allah, God is one. Or as the Jews say in their Shema, when they uh, pray in the synagogues, they close their eyes. They say Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which means, uh, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one." But really, the trans—they—they they say Adonai in the terms of, in, in the replacement of the word Yotchava, because they feel that like it's too sacred to pronounce. So they close their eyes meaning like the veil of Muhammad they don't look directly at God showing subservience and obedience hear O Israel Yod Chava is our God Yod Chava is one so again we talk about in Kabbalah how God is a tri-unity Father, Son, Holy Spirit which is one light which is Allah emanating, emanating from the Ein Sof which is Allah so different aspects of manifestations of that one light so, this is a very important scripture, this teaching from uh, al Salah. I heard Abu al-Hatim al-Sijistani say, that al-Jalajali al-Basri said, for the testimony of unity, Tawhid, to be in force, faith is prerequisite. For whoever has no faith c- cannot testify to the unity. So what do we mean by faith? Faith is not believing in something, intellectually, emotionally, or having a instinctual habit in the body. Faith is our direct cognizance of God in our three brains and out of the body and experiences. If we don't have that experience of God that we cannot testify to the unity of our God to know that divine presence is is really a profound uh, state of being. For faith to be enforced, the divine law is prerequisite. For whoever does not hold to the divine law has no faith and cannot testify to the unity. So somebody who has no ethical discipline cannot know God. Uh, And this is sad to see in spiritual groups where people are infected with pride and anger and resentment. And they gossip, they lie, they speak badly about others. And as the Apostle James said, it's really the tongue which produces all the suffering in the world. It's like a little rudder in a ship which steers such great... Giant vessels with such a little thing as saying, as a, as a tongue, but really it directly influences all things, our relationships. But those who don't follow the, the path of ethics cannot have faith. Meaning, those who fornicate cannot have faith. Those who steal, who lie, who commit adultery, even if not physically, but in the mind, it means that we don't have faith. But the more we work on those defects, then we'll know God. For the divine law to be in force, refined conduct is prerequisite. For whoever has not refined his conduct cannot hold the divine law, has no faith, and cannot testify to the unity. Ibn Atta said, Adab, refined behavior, is to hold fast to the commendable things. When asked, what is the meaning of this? He replied, it means that you behave properly toward God, Both in secret and in public. Again, Al Batin Al Zahir in uh, Arabic. If you are like that, you are a man of refined culture, even if you are a foreigner. Then he recited. When she conversed, her speech was all graciousness. And when she she kept silent, her silence was all fair. So Samael and Vior says in uh, Revolution of the Dialectic that it is a crime as much to speak when one, one must be silent as to be silent when one must speak. Same teaching. So, really refined behavior is knowing when we are with others, when to be silent, but also knowing when to speak when it's necessary. We know this through intuition, following our heart, and being mindful of uh, the commandments that were given to us for uh, refining our behavior. This is probably one of the most important quotes that we find in the scripture. Al Rasalah. Al-Judai said that whoever does not establish awe of duty in vigilance in his relationship to God will not arrive at disclosure of the unseen or contemplation, mushahidah of the divine. What does it mean, awe of duty? Meaning to feel that reverence when we sit to meditate. That we know we have a we have a sense of fear and. Not egotistical fear, but a sense of longing and, uh, and yearning for God that inspires us to practice every day. So to have awe of duty is to really establish a, a, a regimen of practice and to have reverence for that and to maintain it. Vigilance is self-observation. To not sleep as a psyche, but to observe. Our relationship to ourselves, to others and to our being. For whoever does not do this will not arrive at disclosure of the unseen, meaning to tear the veil as that prophet Muhammad wears, that ISIS wears, nor will we have contemplation, Mushahidah, the divine, meaning to, 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 meaning to bear witness of the Shahidah. because uh, it's one of the pillars of Islam. I should have explained that earlier. We have five pillars in Islam. One of them is the declaration of faith Called the shahida, Which Muslims they, traditionally they say you know, Allah is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet And then supposedly they enter into Islam And that they are part of the tradition That's not the meaning here The meaning is to know God In a samadhi Without any perception or fil- uh, filters to our perception Free consciousness No ego Present so That is mushahidah To bear witness So another important quote about the love about what refinement really means. I heard Abu Hatim al-Shijistani say that Abu al-Nasir al tusi al-Saraj said, "People have three levels of refinement. For the people of this world, meaning the profane, refinement largely consists of eloquent speech and rhetoric, along with the memorization of sciences and of the name of kings and of poetry of the Arabs. For the people of the next world." Refinement logic consists of training the ego and disciplining the body, preserving the limits of the law, and abandoning desires. So having culture intellectually is, anybody can do that, and, but they don't work on their defects, their ego. But a, a person of the next world, somebody who's having astral experiences, is because they're training their mind in ethics. Disciplining the body to sit in one posture to meditate. And observing the commandments of our, or the ethical, ethical discipline we follow. And abandoning desires. This is essential. Renunciation of our desires is the key. Because ethics is when we, every moment, we do not act on a bad habit. We're abandoning those desires. We stop feeding them. That's really when we're cultivating this, this sense of self-observation and refinement. For the elite... Refinement largely consists of cleansing the heart of vices, meaning annihilating the ego through the Divine Mother. Guarding inner secrets, meaning if we have astral experiences, we don't necessarily uh, share with the whole world, but keep it typically to ourselves. Sometimes it's good to talk and discuss and share things if we have questions, but really the most sacred experiences we should not talk about. Also, being faithful to one's promises. And uh, we find that in a, in a, really, to be faithful with our promises mean, ref, ref, uh, refers to uh, having a continuity of purpose. And if you've read revolutionary psychology, you find that the Master Samael talks about the need for continuity of purpose. Because we have thousands of egos, which all have different wills, ideas, which are, take us in different directions. But in order to become one unity, talk, heed, to express the unity of our God, we need to take that multiplicity and destroy those vices. But also, we need to, uh, that's, that's what it means to be faithful to one's promises. We promise to our God we will serve him and her. But those who are not faithful to their promises are those who identify with their defects. And we call a being uh, in Arabic that is split between God above and really our our demons below is a hasna musan arabic term for a, a being with a split personality which is all of us we have god above and ourselves but here we are in the physical plane as a demon we're split so we need to be have faith to our being so that we, we can eliminate our imperfections and unite with god and then one is not us one isn't split anymore between heaven and hell and that would it mean that's what it means to be faithful to our promise to our being to the mission that our God has to change. Also, protecting the present for the elite refinement logic consists of cleansing the heart of vices, guarding inner secrets, being faithful to one's promises, protecting the present means to be vigilant here and now and never to abandon self-observation. Not turning aside in thought along with um, refined behavior in the stations of the search meaning we don't let our thoughts distract us from being aware of God because our God is with us here and now and we need to be aware of that. Stations refer to uh, levels of development, initiation. As we're searching for God, we continue to develop more and more. Also, not, uh, not turning aside in thought along with refined behavior in the stations of the search, in the moments of presence with God and in the stages of closeness to God. Because even if one is... Uh, united with, uh, your, with the Lord. Like I said, even angels can fall. So we need to, if we're at that level, they have to still be ethical and to not identify with their own mind, but to become one with the abstract seedy, the, the universal mind or the consciousness, which we can only verify really and understand through experience. So uh, in terms of karma, we talk about four principles. All this has to do with, all all this talk about ethics pertains to karma. If we produce uh, certain causes, we'll get certain effects. And Kappa, who Samael and Viore said is the reincarnation of Buddha, came to teach in one of his uh, three three books, three treatises called the Lamrim Chenmo, which is a great treatise on the stages of the path of enlightenment. Talks about, in the first book, about four principles of karma. Which are important to know. And again, to emphasize, karma comes from the Sanskrit "karman" to act. One actions produce related consequences. This is something we typically. Are, it seems simple, but we really, if we analyze ourselves, it's we find that we typically don't do this. We don't really understand how our actions produce certain results. Two, consequences are greater than the actions. I know in Newtonian physics it says that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But the truth is, if you throw a stone in a pool, that one ripple extends outward and affects the entire lake. So one action can benefit the world, one destructive action can affect everybody. And we know this in, our, in the news. We hear about school shootings, one person caused so much chaos, people emotionally distraught and, and disturbed entire communities are affected. So the, action, the consequences are always greater than the action. And the Dalai Lama emphasized this point when someone asked him, you know, how can we change the world if there's so much negativity going around? And, the, and this master, Tenzin Gyatso, said, you think you can't change the world? Think about trying, you know, when you're trying to sleep if a mosquito is bothering you. Such a little thing could make a big difference. You cannot receive the consequence without committing its corresponding action. Meaning, you cannot receive a result unless you receive a certain karmic result if you didn't produce the, the, the individual action. This is important to understand in alchemy because I know many people think that when someone is sexually united with their partner, they share karma. Well, the truth is, you share, if one is married, one shares tendencies psychologically, emotionally, physically. But you cannot receive an action A result if you didn't produce the action So meaning If uh, for instance A person uh, commits murder It doesn't mean that the wife Goes to jail That's the Way to think about it But if you produce a certain action You get the consequences And four Once an action is performed The consequence cannot be erased However There's a superior law which is grace. And according to Gnosticism, as the Master Samael says in Tarot and Kabbalah, a uh, superior law always washes away an inferior law. So even if we make a mistake, we can rectify it if we follow our being to have upright conduct. From the Bhagavad Gita, we find this teaching of Krishna, the Christ, with Arjuna. Um, He talks about Karma Yoga and the Yoga of renunciation of action, which summarizes many of the points we've made. Arjuna said, Renunciation of actions, O Krishna, thou praises and again yoga. Tell me conclusively which is the better of the two. So first he talked about renunciation uh, or abandoning desires. And then next, yoga, union with God. The blessed Lord said, the cosmic Christ through Krishna, renunciation and the yoga of action both lead to the highest bliss. But of the two, the yoga of action is superior to the renunciation of action. So first we need to learn how to renounce our uh, bad habits. But then we need to know how to act consciously. So one thing is to restrain our defect from acting. But once we fully comprehend an ego and our Divine Mother annihilates it, then in turn, we learn how to act in a superior way. A superior law washes away the inferior law. The law of mercy overcomes the law of uh, Italian. He should be known as a perpetual sannyasin who neither hates nor desires. Sannyasin is someone who is really no ego, a, re- a real meditator. For free from the perils of opposites, O mighty armed Arjuna, he is easily set free from bondage. Meaning our, our discipline is when we overcome the the battle of the opposites in our mind, the battle of the antitheses. thought. Anti-thought, concept, any concept, thesis, antithesis, where the mind is constantly struggling between duality. Instead, we find unity there. Tawhid. Children, not the wise, speak of knowledge and the yoga of action or the performance of action as though they are distinct and different. He who is truly established in one obtains the fruit of both. So children, people who are ignorant, who have no direct knowledge, talk about yoga and their traditions in a without really understanding that they're one. Two aspects of one thing: a conscious principle. That place which is reached by the sakyas or the nyanis, those who have jnana, knowledge, is reached by the karma yogis. He who sees sees he sees who sees knowledge and the performance of action, karma yoga, as one. So again, knowledge is what we gain directly from restraining our mind and fulfilling, doing right, good action, upright thought. Upright feeling, upright action, and our three brains. But renunciation, O mighty-armed Arjuna, is hard to attain without yoga. The the yoga-harmonized sage proceeds quickly to Brahman, the Absolute, which is Christ. Again, another name for Allah, Brahman. He who is devoted to the path of action, whose mind is quite pure, who has conquered the self, the ego, who has subdued his senses through pratyahara, attaining silence of mind, and who has realized his self as the self in all beings, the innermost Atman, uh, our inner God, as the God within all others. Through acting, he is not tainted. So when we learn how to act, we, we, in a conscious way, first restraining the mind, and then acting through the virtues we develop, we in turn... uh, we in turn uh, learn to see God within all beings and we don't commit sin and we don't acquire negative consequences. So like the lotus flower that emerges from the swamp is pure is not affected by the muddiness of the waters. Same thing with our life. Our soul should blossom like a flower above the filthiness of our mind until uh, and every time we act consciously we don't acquire negative consequences. Just wondering, I I had read in one of the books that sometimes when we look at these images, the blue skin is because they're from a, a different planet. Yeah, there was a mentioning of the blue race in uh, different traditions, um, speci- specifically within a book called Gazing at the Mystery by Island and York. But the fact that Krishna is blue, blue—I mean, at least in this next image—we find three colors: blue, yellow, and red. Blue relates to the Father. Yellow relates to the, the Son, the Christ, and red is the Holy Spirit. So Krishna is is really the three primary forces above: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But to say you know there is a race of blue men mentioned in uh, by Samael and Vior is, true. But really, the deeper meaning is that blue relates to the father, Keter. So this is Keter, Hokma Bina with Arjuna on the battlefield of the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, with uh, Arjuna, which is Tifereth, the human soul, our willpower. I do nothing at all. Thus will the harmonized knower of truth think, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, going, sleeping, breathing. We have to feel that we are not... uh, doing anything from our ego, to not act with desire, but to let our God act through us. And, it's le- and in this case, one's actions come from the being. So in a sense, one does nothing but the will of the Lord. Speaking, letting go, seizing, opening, and closing the eyes, convinced that the senses are move among the sense objects. He who performs actions, offering them to Brahman, and abandoning attachment, is not tainted by sin as a lotus leaf by water. Yogis, having abandoned attachment, perform actions only by the body, mind, intellect, and also by the senses for the purification of the self. Here, intellect really should be buddhi. They translate it as intellect, which we think of as uh, the intellectual brain, the mind. Really, intellect in in Sanskrit is a common translation for buddhi. Buddhi is the divine soul, consciousness, gibura. And... uh, uh, Every time we act with purification of the self, we are controlling our body, mind, and soul. The united one, the well poised or the harmonized, having abandoned the fruit of action, attains to the eternal peace. The non united only, only, the, the only, the unsteady or the imbalanced, impelled by desire and attached to the fruit, is bound. So the non united, uh, those who are steady and imbalanced. Are identified with ego, desire. Mentally renouncing all actions and self-controlled, the embodied one rests happily in the nine-gated city, neither acting nor causing others' body and senses to act. Again, nine-gated relates to the nine superior Sephiroth. Refers to the human being. We find this in uh, teachings of uh, Ibn Arabi as well, the Sufi master, but also here in the Bhagavad Gita. And the
0: fruit is-
1: Yes, because uh, we, we, we've borne the results of the, our mistakes from the past, which is abusing the, the Garden of Eden, the, which is representative of... Uh, the Tree of Knowledge is representat- uh, representative of the sexual energy. To eat the fruit is to orgasm, to abuse that energy. And um, so we bear the fruit of that. So the fruit of action, of fornication, is, is bitterness, suffering. And uh, likewise, each action should be one born from purity of mind, or chastity. Again, we find the image of the Prophet Muhammad with the veil covering his head, illuminated with fire, meaning he's raised the Kundalini up to the brain, from the bottom of the base of the spine, and is fully illuminated with that sexual power. So to emphasize how the yoga of renunciation and the yoga of action are, are united, I'd like to explain another quote from Al-Kushari which emphasizes this duality between being and soul and how uh, we need to learn how to not do our own will but the will of our being to renounce our our own habits and desires and to let the will of the being determine our actions. Irada, the will to find God is the beginning of the path of spiritual travelers the first title given to those who are determined to reach God Most High Allah, may he be praised and exalted, as we say in Islam. This attribute is only called irada because will is the preface to every undertaking. Well the servant does not will, he does not carry out. We, do not, we will not produce the necessary uh, consequences if we don't fulfill the action. So karma is dual. If we behave negatively, we receive negative results. If we re- act positively with the consciousness, we receive... Uh, conscious results. Since this is the start of the enterprise of one who travels the path of God Almighty and Glorious, it is called will by analogy to the resolution involved at the beginning of everything else. According to etymology, the disciple is he who possesses will, just as the knower is he who possesses knowledge, marifa, gnosis, because the word belongs to the class of derived nouns. But in Sufi usage, the disciple is he who possesses no will at all. Here, one who does not abandon will cannot be called a disciple, meaning egotistical will. If you don't renounce your own desires, you cannot be a disciple. Just as, linguistically, one who does not possess will cannot be called a disciple. So, what willpower are we talking about is the question. And this is something we need to observe. Are we following our egotistical desires or are we following the will of our being? So, you need both, abandon desire and to act from the will of God as uh, uh, Krishna said to Arjuna. And it's this understanding of uh, cause and effect in our daily life that we understand the law of interdependence in Buddhism, which is dependent arising or dependent origination. No phenomena is separately independent of others. Even Even our psychology. Our psychological states are determined by their relationship to external events. Or impressions. And so we find that uh, in uh, the revolutionary psychology that we need to learn how to develop internal states in relation to external events. Find the relationship between them. As it says in the Majima Nakaya, uh, chapter 79, verse 8, When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, That ceases. This is a, I mean, it's simple, but it's very profound. If we examine our, ourselves, if we don't see how, really, in our daily life, we don't see how our negative habits produce wrong consequences, typically. But if we are observant of that, and we really understand this principle fully, we'll become an angel. An angel knows good and evil in balance, in harmony. And, uh, to really understand how certain causes produce certain effects completely is to be self-realized. So don't think that one day you'll get it and then we, that we're going to get it and then it's going to be over. I mean, really, even the gods are balancing those forces knowing how cause and effect relate. It's a law, eternal law. And So as I said, ethics pertains even to the gods, but in a very high degree. It's something we can't get at this level, but if we have experiences, we can get glimpses. The body and mind cannot come to be by their own strength nor can they maintain themselves by their own strength relying for support on other states. They come, in, they come to be with others as condition or conditions. They are produced by something other than themselves. So every internal state is a, result, is a, is a response to external impressions. You cannot separate one from the other. But usually our habit when we identify with our mind is to feel like everyone is outside of ourselves and that we are separate when we have to become clairvoyant and understand our thoughts relate to other people and other people's thoughts affect ourselves so as and Vior said in the revolutionary psychology the one who learns how to appropriately match internal states with external events marches on the path of success for as the Buddha said in the Majima Nikaya now this has been said by the blessed one One who sees dependent arising sees the Dhamma or the Dharma, the law, the instruction, the Sharia, the the Torah, the, the, the commandments. One who sees the Dharma, the Dhamma, sees dependent arising. So to really know ethics is to understand our psychological relationship to other things in every instant and not to identify with our mind. So, if we we want to live happily, we need to learn how to cultivate our internal states and to make them appropriate for the external events that we perceive. This is dependent arising. This impression emerges and enters my psyche and I react or I respond, depends. If an impression of of a a hurtful word enters my psyche or enters one's psyche, anger emerges and that's the reaction. But uh, that's the egotistical response. And if we curtail that and separate our psyche from that and observe that defect in action and respond with love towards the aggressor, that's developing the superior law, the Dharma. So to know the relationship of cause and effect, internal state, external event, is a work of of a master. To be a master is to fully understand that law. Well, to a degree, we could say, because there's levels amongst the masters. But to really understand the law, to be self-realized, is to understand how our psychological states affect our external events and how they relate, especially how we relate to people. And uh, this relates to clairvoyance and telepathy, understanding other people's minds and thoughts or seeing them directly with our spiritual perception. I'm sorry, Paul, I'm to get going to No problem. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'll see you guys the next time. Take care. And uh, we find that uh, with uh, this image, we have Nagarjuna, who talked about his uh, fundamental notions of the mid- uh, fundamentals of the Middle Way, uh, the Mulamadhyamaka Karika, chapter 24, verses 18 through 19. He discusses how uh, it's understanding cause and effect within oneself that uh, we find the relationship or the emptiness of. Uh, uh, really, phenomena are empty. They are not uh, independently existing of themselves. And so, when we understand how our internal states are related to external events, and we develop uh, conscious states through ethics, we find that we are in turn um, understanding how egotistical desires are really empty. They're not substantially real. We have them, but at the same time, we have to understand that. Their, these phenomena are, are really don't have any uh, absolute existence. Because anger emerges whenever someone, if a person insults us. So that ego is dependent on that impression to emerge. And so eventually that anger goes away or disappears. So we see that it's really not eternal. There's no eternal self there. Only God Atman is eternal. But even God is dependent upon the Absolute, we could say. So we say that all phenomena really don't have intrinsic existence, they're empty. And when we understand this emptiness as the the pristine luminous nature of our consciousness, we see that, well, our defects and desires really don't have any uh, substantiality. That which arises dependently, we explain as emptiness. This emptiness is dependent designation. Just this is the middle way, cause and effect. And ethics is how we understand emptiness, how, which is God. God is empty of form, does not depend on anything, or the Christ does not depend on anything, but is luminous light, intelligence, perception, without filters. But to understand how certain actions produce certain results is the work of dependent origination. Because there is no phenomena that is not depend- that is not dependently arisen, there is no phenomena that is not empty. So impressions are impermanent; they come and go. They're not stable, and it's by understanding how the instability of our internal states to external events is how we develop comprehension, which is emptiness, cognizance, not a nihilism, or an abstract ne- negation of one's existence, but a type of comprehension and, and perception, which is free of conditioning of mind free of uh, obstruction. So lastly, Swami Shivananda, in this uh, slide, he explains the following advice that I want to relate to you. Do not imagine that you are a great initiate and that you will only have to sit in meditation and enter into somebody. You will have a terrible downfall. Even after years of practice, you will find that you have not progressed an inch forward because there are deep within you lurking desires and cravings which are far beyond your reach. Be humble. Make a searching analysis of your heart and mind. Even if you are really a first-class aspirant, think you are an aspirant of the lowest class and practice the eightfold steps. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. The more time you spend in the first steps, Yama, Niyama, ethics, the less will be the time needed to retain perfection in meditation. Because in order to understand Christ, which is empty of form, we need to have ethical discipline, as we've been mentioning. It is a preparation that takes very long, but do not wait for perfection in ethics in order to take the higher practices of the path. Try to get established in ethics and at the same time practice the other steps, such as concentration, pranayama, uh, maintaining a relaxed posture, etc. The two steps must go hand in hand. Then success will be rapid. Something to think about in terms of uh, our uh, understanding of our own discipline. Any questions?
0: I couldn't agree more with that last statement. It's that's kind of how I feel. It's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a saint, but I just got to keep on building up my practice.
1: And as uh, Rumi taught, he said that, uh, he said uh Small perfection. Small. Uh, actually, Michelangelo said, "Small trifles make perfection, but perfection is a trifle." So, little by. And Rumi says, "You know, if we were able to get up for 40 mornings and the early mornings to practice, that will contribute to our growing wholeness as a psyche in development, as a, like an embryo that is of a child that is giving form." So, little by little, we develop the soul. With patience, possess ye your souls, as Jesus taught. And uh, the way that we develop ourselves patiently is with our discipline, ethics, working, restraining our mind, and then meditating, combining the two. So don't wait for perfection and ethics in order to practice, but go hand in hand together. So if
0: I get a break from this lecture, the most important thing for us to work on is our ethics.
1: Then. In conjunction with our practice, yeah, but, ethics, but, but ethics is really about... Uh, is a foundation for meditation, because if we want to meditate, have a clear mind, we can't be killing or stealing or doing other things, and on the one hand, there's the physical level application, more importantly, it's really the psychological aspect, how we react internally in our mind, and curtailing those habits, but first physically, we can't do those things, but then psychologically, we need to curtail those habits. Comments or questions?
0: You're
1: welcome.
0: So, I did have a question about the four principles of karma. The third one, which was that the consequence cannot be received by
1: anyone who is not taking the action. Yes. Yes. Consequence of the karma because an action can have consequences that extend to other people, right? Other than the person who's committing the action. For instance, yeah, if, for instance, if you're married, um, if your wife commits murder, you don't go to jail, she does, right? But your wife might suffer the pain of you leaving her at exactly. Moment. So, everything's that, a, t- that a karma that No, it's 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 part of her. It's part of the consequences of her actions. Okay. And so you know every, that shows that everything is related, nothing is separate. But in the terms of receiving such as an illness or disease or punishment as a result of acting wrong, no one else can receive that but a person who is, who deserves it. You know who who, who uh, committed those wrong actions. So uh, the law is a law, but and uh, as we say in this teaching, the law is always fulfilled because. Um, um, because uh you know the co- you know in order to receive something you have, you have to do the action so the consequence and the action are interdependent as well yes okay. and so understanding the relationship of right action wrong action is understanding karma right and understanding how phenomena are really empty in and of themselves and when you have to uh, understand the connections between things, especially our internal states and external events, mostly. And that's how we act well. We stop behaving in mistaken ways. Again, this is the work of self-observation. And that's the, the superior law of getting out of the turning of cause and effect, and right. extracting yourself from that. Yeah, and the thing is with, uh, with that, it's like when you learn to act in a conscious way, one doesn't acquire karma. One doesn't. One, if you don't sin, you won't, you won't receive. You won't be blemished. You won't receive bad actions. But like the lotus that hovers above the the waters, as Krishna said in the Bhagavad Gita. So not, best,
0: huh?
1: yeah, and, that, and that's the thing we have to bear that patiently. But you know we bear it. We're patient. We we are disciplined, and we don't. We work on those elements that need to be disintegrated. And then. Uh, we pay our debts and in turn purify our mind. And that's really the purpose of karma. is if we receive certain challenges in our life, it's because if we're being chased, we're going to receive that karma in an objective way, in a different way, than someone who is fornicating. because: but even the master suffer
0: greatly, right? and they At a higher level.
1: To understand what, for instance, the suffering of a God is different from from us, and it's a very uh, to really understand that type of suffering. You know, the suffering for a master, for instance, is like not having. You know, one could reach Ain Sof in Kabbalah, return to the being that the, the absolute to a certain degree with knowledge, and it's bliss. But at the same time, uh, even angels have to balance their. Uh, karmic transactions at a very high level, which is, you know, in order to gain the right to enter and to aim the absolute. So there are levels of development. And so sometimes, you know, masters can suffer as a result of uh, uh, wanting and wait, waiting to be admitted into the...
0: So their bliss
1: is interdependent on their suffering. Well, their bliss is uh, the result of being united with God to a level. But uh, there's, but suffering in that degree is, of, uh, is very, very different, and really it's a um, difficult thing to, for me to convey, uh, or to explain. It's something that you know, if you have an experience at, those, at that level, in a samadhi, then you may get it. But um, we know that even the gods suffer, to, to, but not like we do. We we we're our suffering is very intense. But for, for an Elohim. I'm of like someone like the Lord Alvaramento who went through that trial. Right. But he was, fully. But he,
0: he, he, he gave that of himself, right? That wasn't
1: karma for him. That was him no. willingly walking into suffering to be resurrected, right? And to give an example for what we need to do. But he's, he fully conquered suffering. He is a being that went beyond the law. And as an inhabitant of the highest divinity. So he's absolutely perfect. So other, he's teaching other masters how to reach that degree known as a Paramartha Satya. Paramartha means absolute cognizance. And uh, Satya is the essence. So someone who has full knowledge of many infinites. And an infinite is a collection of billions of galaxies. So Aparmenta is really a rare being. But, you know, there's degrees among masters and there's degrees, you know, among initiates according to the level of knowledge. And some masters suffer because they want more knowledge even if they're perfect to a degree. So it's a subtle thing. But their suffering is is uh, very different from ours and very difficult to comprehend unless we really have a samadhi at that, in that level and see what it's like to be at that degree of consciousness. So you have no more comments. Is there also a type of, kind of like what what Alice is saying, but a type of suffering that the High Masters will do, kind of like for humanity, kind of, kind of to like on our behalf, I guess, like maybe. Yeah, it's uh, suffering and it's suffering you know. to it's suffering for a master to, uh, you know, uh, for instance, you know, you have. If you ever read a scripture, we're going to do a course on the voice of the silence. Uh, At the end of that scripture, it talks about how when one self realizes, one becomes another brick in the guardian wall, which is a wall, each brick is a master that composes the army of the, the angels that really work to help humanity. And it's a path of suffering, really, but bliss. Because after many eternities of helping humanity and suffering for their benefit... To help them to self-realize, they will eventually gain the right to enter into the absolute. And um, it's, it's, it's Bolvatsky transcribed that that scripture from Senzar, an ancient language, and it conveys um, a lot of suffering on the part of these masters who try to help humanity. And uh, eventually, they'll gain the right after serving for many cosmic days. You know if they self-realize, um, they will eventually they keep working and manifesting materially and physically and, or internally to help others attain this state of the angels. But then, you know that, that's the path, but that's the path of an angel to, in order to enter the absolute. So an angel is a self-realized master, but may not have the right to enter into the, the Ain, which is where the, a being like Arboramento Jesus entered. So he's a paramartha satya. He's, he's above an angel. So there's hierarchies. But those beings like angels, they suffer because you know, they're serving and serving but humanity is ignorant. So um, they serve many humanities in a, for different cosmic eras. But eventually will gain the right. If, if they don't let themselves fall, they'll eventually have the right to enter the, the absolute. But the problem is many of them fall because they are tempted and... That's why They lose So ethics again Is not Doesn't finish When you annihilate your ego Because even If you have no ego You can get tempted To uh, Do wrong things Because the mind is there So Not lunar mind But solar mind It's a different thing To know the difference We have to really Have that body Inside And to Really know what it's like And meditate And have the experience (laughs)